The rule of law, policing and public service are key to a free society. Many of the issues we've been facing here in the United States are being felt by law enforcement agencies across the world, including our brothers and sisters in Canada. Today we're joined by Tom Stamatakis, President of the Canadian Police Association and the International Council of Police Representative Association, to compare and contrast law enforcement on either side of our border. I'm Patrick Gills, National President of Fraternal Auto Police, and this is The Blue View. Tom, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, yeah, Pat, it's a pleasure for me to be here, and uh, it's nice to see you again, even though it's still virtually. Uh, so my background is I'm a police officer in, in the city of Vancouver in, uh, in the province of British Columbia in Canada. Uh, I'll just explain a little bit about how policing works in Canada. Uh, and, and to do that, I think I need to talk a little bit about how, you know, the construct of Canada or how the government works in Canada. We're a, what's called a, a constitutional monarchy. Um, and, and so we have a federal government in that context. And then we have a number of provinces, which would be similar to your states in the, in, in the United States. The provinces are constitutionally independent. And so our federal government create the federal laws in Canada, but the provinces are responsible for funding uh, policing and for oversight of policing. So they, they set the rules for how police services operate in each province across the country. And to further complicate things, uh, policing in Canada is predominantly funded by municipalities. Um, so even though uh, the federal government create the criminal law, the provinces have responsibility for policing. Generally speaking, it's the municipalities that fund uh, policing to the greatest extent. So that, that creates some uh, challenges for us. We have about, um, you know, it's a much smaller number of law enforcement personnel across the country than it would be in the States. Obviously we have a smaller population as a country. Uh, we're only about uh, around 36 million people in the entire country. It's a large country similar to the size of the US. And we have about uh, 80,000 law enforcement personnel working in different jurisdictions across the country. Um, 60,000 of those are members of the Canadian Police Association and another 20,000 are part of our federal police force, the RCMP, who uh, are not only involved in federal policing, but they're involved in uh, provincial policing and also contract policing with certain municipalities. The Canadian Police Association represent all uh, municipal and provincial police uh, across the country. So they'll, they'll be the police that work in our smallest most rural remote villages. Some of these communities are fly in, fly out to some of our largest cities like Vancouver, where I'm from, uh, Toronto, which is, I think it's the fourth or fifth largest city in North America. Uh, and then we have provincial police services as well that police an entire province, like the Ontario Provincial Police, uh, um, uh, Quebec Provincial Police, and one more province in uh, Newfoundland, which has its own provincial police force. So it's a big country. We've got these different layers of jurisdiction in terms of policing and our people um, police across the entire country in different environments. And, and that in of itself creates some issues because we also have a very large um, and, and uh, um, a very large indigenous community with um, ongoing issues related to that in terms of um, the historical relationship between uh, 
Canada settlers and the indigenous community. And we also have two official languages uh, being uh, French and English, which, which creates some additional uh, challenges for us. For example, our meetings are all in both official languages. Our correspondence is always in both official languages. And there are regional differences. The rule of law, policing and public service are key to a free society. Many of the issues we've been facing here in the United States are being felt by law enforcement agencies across the world, including our brothers and sisters in Canada. Today, we're joined by Tom Stamatakis, president of the Canadian Police Association and the International Council of Police Representative Association, to compare and contrast law enforcement on either side of our border. I'm Patrick Gills, national president of Fraternal Auto Police, and this is The Blue View. Tom, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, yeah, Pat, it's a pleasure for me to be here, and uh, it's nice to see you again, even though it's still virtually. Uh, so my background is I'm a police officer in, in the city of Vancouver in, uh, in the province of British Columbia in Canada. Uh, I'll just explain a little bit about how policing works in Canada, uh, and, and to do that, I think I need to talk a little bit about how you know the construct of Canada or how the government works in Canada. We're a, what's called a, a constitutional monarchy. Um, and, and so we have a federal government in that context. And then we have a number of provinces, which would be similar to your states in the, in, in the United States. The provinces are constitutionally independent. And so our federal government create the federal laws in Canada, but the provinces are responsible for funding uh, policing and for oversight of policing. So they, they set the rules for how police services operate in each province across the country. And to further complicate things, uh, policing in Canada is predominantly funded by municipalities. Um, so even though uh, the federal government create the criminal law, the provinces have responsibility for policing. Generally speaking, it's the municipalities that fund uh, policing to the greatest extent. So that, that creates some uh, challenges for us. We have about, um, you know, it's a much smaller number of law enforcement personnel across the country than it would be in the States. Obviously we have a smaller population as a country. Uh, we're only about uh, around 36 million people in the entire country. It's a large country similar to the size of the US. And we have about uh, 80,000 law enforcement personnel working in different jurisdictions across the country. Um, 60,000 of those are members of the Canadian Police Association and another 20,000 are part of our federal police force, the RCMP, who uh, are not only involved in federal policing, but they're involved in uh, provincial policing and also contract policing with certain municipalities. The Canadian Police Association represent all uh, municipal and provincial police uh, across the country. So they'll, they'll be the police that work in our smallest most rural remote villages. Some of these communities are fly in, fly out to some of our largest cities like Vancouver, where I'm from, uh, Toronto, which is, I think it's the fourth or fifth largest city in North America. Uh, and then we have provincial police services as well that police an entire province, like the Ontario Provincial Police, uh, um, uh, Quebec Provincial Police, and one more province in uh, Newfoundland, which has its own provincial police force. So it's a big country. We've got these different layers of jurisdiction in terms of policing and our people um, police 
across the entire country in different environments. And, and that in of itself creates some issues because we also have a very large um, and, and uh, uh, a very large indigenous community with um, ongoing issues related to that in terms of um, the historical relationship between uh, Canada's settlers and the indigenous community. And we also have two official languages uh, being uh, French and English, which, which creates some additional uh, challenges for us. For example, our meetings are all in both official languages. Our correspondence is always in both official languages. And there are regional differences. So we have the West Coast, our central part of our country, which is our prairie provinces. Uh, and then we have Ontario and Quebec, our most populated provinces, and then the East Coast, which are our maritime provinces. So uh, lots of similarities between the two countries in terms of size and the regional differences, but but also a lot of differences because of our different, um, um, you know, governmental structure and, 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 and those kinds of things. Um, in terms of my background, I've been, I'm a, like, as I said before, I'm a police officer in the city of Vancouver. I'm actually seconded from that role to my position with the Canadian Police Association. I've been the president of the Canadian Police Association since 2011. But I've also been the president of my local association. I was the president there until 2019 for about 20 years. And I also created or was a founding member of, of a provincial association that we created uh, in British Columbia, and I was the president there until 2019 uh, for about 10 or 11 years uh, once we started that organization. Uh, you know, so in those different roles, it, it's given me some, you know, opportunities to, to, to understand about uh, policing at the local level, but also provincially and federally. And in my role federally and, and provincially, it was more of an advocacy role where I'm, I'm engaged in a lot of similar activities to you, to you, to those you are, Pat, in terms of advocating the federal uh, government around, you know, public policy issues that affect policing, legislative change, um, uh, changes to uh, our criminal code, federal legislation, uh, and, and those kinds of issues. And I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to talk about uh, those kinds of things a bit more, a bit more as we as we move along through the show. Uh, but, you know, lots of experience negotiating collective agreements, dealing with grievances and arbitrations. I'm, I'm uh, heavily involved in our uh, police pension plan in British Columbia, and I've engaged in lots of advocacy, like I say, at the local, provincial, and federal level, uh, dealing with lots of, you know, sort of strategic comms issues, crisis management. Um, and it's been an interesting uh, career over about a almost 25-year period now, uh, and juggling you know, policing for sure at the beginning of that, but more recently, more focused on my role uh, with the Canadian Police Association and the advocacy work. Yeah, Tom, I've always enjoyed uh, talking with you because although there's a border between us and we do have some cultural differences between our two countries, it is it is amazing how similar a lot of our challenges are. And, and just for an example, uh, we've been dealing in the last two years uh, uh, struggling uh, pretty bad with a, a lot of attacks on, uh, you know, by law enforcement, a demonizing of law enforcement uh, by by many public officials uh, after a couple of high profile incidents, and, and it's it's really uh, kind of turned our our profession upside down, and, and created a, a whole bunch of challenges in 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 the, in the name of uh, police reform. 
and, and some of the some of the reform is 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 good and is actually advancing our profession. And some of it has been uh, the, the the approach to it is has really been detrimental to uh, to our direction and the stability of our job. And it, it's it's created a number of challenges of which we'll we'll talk about as we as we go through. But I, I found it very interesting that. Uh, this has happened here in America, but it's had a ripple effect across the border. Uh, can you kind of share just, uh, you know, the, the view of how uh, what's happened in America with uh, the police reform movement and how it's affected Canada? Yeah, I, I, I'd be happy to, uh, Pat. Uh, and, and I agree, you know, the issues are very similar. And, and I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit more about our, our international organization that we're both part of and, and what you see, not just between our two countries, but internationally in terms of the issues uh, frontline police personnel face, you know, in communities and countries that they're policing in right across the world, there lots of commonality in terms of the issues. But specifically with respect to Canada and the U.S., very, a lot of similarities. We, you know, there, there are many opportunities for, for you know, sharing of, of information with respect to practice. Uh, there's lots of, uh, you know, I know our members participate often in training opportunities in the United States with, with colleagues, whether they're at the, you know, involved with policing some of your larger cities or, or your state police services, et cetera. Uh, so there's lots of commonality. Uh, I will say, you know, in the last two years in the aftermath of the George Floyd incident in Minneapolis, it's interesting because we've had more of a discussion about policing in Canada since that incident, very much influenced by what was happening in your country and, and somewhat disconnected from policing in Canada because ironically, many of the reforms that people or activists are calling for or, or reformists are calling for in the United States are things that uh, have happened and are in place in Canada and have been for many, many years. So for example, in Canada, we have really robust oversight of law enforcement, particularly at the municipal and even at the provincial level. So we, in most jurisdictions now, we have uh, independent um, agencies with, uh, with statutory authority to respond to and investigate complaints from the public about the police. We have yet another separate entity in most, most jurisdictions uh, with the same sort of statutory authority to investigate major incidents involving the police where where there where a serious injury results uh, to a citizen. So anytime there's, for example, a police involved shooting or any kind of interaction between the police and the public in Canada that results in a serious injury and, and that term is defined and typically uh, means uh, you know a wound or, life-altering injury, broken bones, et cetera, these independent agencies will come in and investigate. And then beyond that, we also have uh, citizen-appointed boards that oversee, that have a governance role or responsibility over most police services uh, in Canada. So we have these multiple layers of oversight, uh, all independent from the police, there's no police agency in Canada right now that would ever investigate its own members if there was a complaint from the public or a serious incident involving the public. Yet, in the aftermath of George Floyd, you, you would never know that that happened because we have the same calls 
in Canada for reform that you were facing in, in the United States. And it was kind of ironic because many of the things that people were calling for were already in place, but people got, got, got so caught up in the rhetoric uh, and the really uninformed rhetoric. And, you know, earlier on, I think we were, a, or previously we've been talking about some of the, you know, the, 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 the issues related to use of force, et cetera. Well, our experience in Canada is, is very similar to yours in the United States. Uh, on a on a different levels uh, in terms of the data or statistics, just because we have fewer police officers in this country. But last year, police officers in Canada responded to you know over 13 million calls for service. We, we use we we rarely use force when we're responding to those calls. In fact, most of those calls are dealt with with no incident, no fanfare, no no controversy. And if you look at the data in Canada, we actually only ever use force probably less than 1% of the time uh, uh, or, or one, in 1% of the occasions where we interact with the public. In Canada, in fact, historically, over about a 30-year period, we probably only ever have about 30 police-involved shootings where somebody dies as a result uh, over the course of a year. And now when you, just, when, you know, when you use the number 30, some people react negatively to that. But in the context of you know, over 14 million or 13 million interactions with the public and those are just the documented calls for service never mind all the other interactions that happen on a day-to-day basis that you know you're you're all familiar with um you know th- th- there's not a an issue uh when it comes to excessive use of force or abuse of authority yeah we have incidents yeah we should be looking at those incidents when they happen and in canada we have very robust systems for doing that but this dialogue that we've been involved with around systemic racism, abuse of authority, and then that morphed into this whole defund conversation that I know that you've been challenged by. It, it, it's just, it's been the most frustrating two years of my career advocating on behalf of law enforcement personnel. And the other thing I've seen over these last two years, which you know I hadn't seen to the extent that it's happened, is this whole politicization of policing that's happened uh, where our elected officials and other uh, people who represent, you know, established institutions in our society, are 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 making statements or doing things uh, that are all about politics uh, and, and and that are not properly informed by by good data and evidence, and that's really undermining uh, policing uh, in both our countries, I think. And has really spilled over to Canada from the U.S., uh, like I said before, in the aftermath of George Floyd. And I don't think that's good. I don't think it's good for the public's confidence in policing. I don't think it's good for police legitimacy. And I think when you undermine the public's confidence in policing and police legitimacy, then you start to see some of these negative consequences, increased uh, you know, uh, uh, disorder in our communities, more violent crime, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's not good for community safety or community wellness. So it's been a very frustrating couple of years and, and I don't think we're through it yet. Although we, you know, in some ways we're turning a bit of a corner, particularly on the, on the, on the defund movement, which I don't think anybody ever agreed on what that term meant or ever defined it properly. And, the, and I think once they started realizing, you know, they were thinking about what defunding the police meant, uh, particularly when many of the suggestions for defunding meant uh, going to other agencies uh, to pick up the slack. Well, nobody checked with those agencies to see if they wanted to work or if they even had the capacity 
to do the work that, that the police have, have sort of taken on over many decades. Um, and I think it was a bit of an eye-opener for a lot of people. So the conversation has changed a little bit, but it's, it's been extremely frustrating. Now that, that rhetoric uh, is, uh, is you, you touched on a point there. The, the rhetoric has gotten so out of control, and, is, and in many cases, it's not fact-based. In, in many cases, facts be damned. Uh, that uh, that it has painted a picture uh, of law enforcement in such a negative light that it's it's having some really adverse uh, effects that are that are are, are really undermining uh, st- the stability of uh, of our profession and, and I think we you know you referred to the amount of, of uh, public interactions there are literally over a million public interactions in the United States uh, of law enforcement in in the vast majority just a very small percentage uh, result in use of force uh, probably not much out of line of what you've identified in in, in Canada yet the perception is is that uh, that that it's much greater than that and, and that 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 misconception is really doing some 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 harm that rhetoric and that demonization of, of the men and women, you know, in, in the United States, some 800,000 uh, 800, men and women who pin on a badge every day and go in and protect their communities really uh, is a disservice to them because they are really the glue that holds a, a good uh, a community together, you know, public safety. Um, but what we've seen in the U.S. just in the last year, we've come in off our worst year uh, in terms of violence towards law enforcement officers. We've had 346 officers that were shot in the line of duty last year, 63 of which uh, died from, as a result of that. And just equally as disturbing is there's, there's 103 separate ambush attacks on law enforcement officers. And, and, and that's 115% increase from, from the year before, which was a record year. So all of this rhetoric, all of this anti-police uh, movement, um, really is doing a disservice in making, not only is it making our communities less safe, it's making our jobs less safe, safe as well. And, uh, you know, it's, it, 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 I, I don't know if people really sit down and think about the long-term effects of which this rhetoric is doing. Um, you know, we, we find ourselves in a, in a crisis mode here. And in, in a lot of ways, I think you could, you could uh, we, we all agree that it, our job is to is to assess and improve as we go on. The criminal justice system is not it's not flawed. There's a there's a there's a human element involved in it, but it's our job to make sure that we that we fix and move on and, and, and create a better, uh, a more perfect system as we move forward. And, and we all, anyone in law enforcement, they have taken that oath. Uh, we all agree in that. Uh, unfortunately, we find ourselves in a little bit different issue uh, with with that. You know the politics of all of this. Where uh, I think it would be safe to say that there are many who are less interested in a solution and more interested in a problem, uh, and and trying to exploit that problem than they are in really trying to make safer communities. And some of these uh, approaches that they're doing in the U.S. has really caused our crime rates to to soar in, in many communities. Uh, and 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 if I could, I'll contrast that between two models here. Um, knowing that uh, the quality of life in any community really has a number of spokes to a wheel. And, uh, and there's a lot of stakeholders involved, and not all of it has to do with law enforcement or the criminal justice system. It has to do with uh, everyone working together towards a common goal of building safe and strong communities. And, and when you take away any parts of these, and we're not working together for it. You see what happens in those cities. This, it's not you know, it's it, it's not a surprise that some of the cities that have enacted what they feel are the greatest uh, uh, police reform movement uh, changes 
are really the cities that are struggling with crime. They're struggling with keeping law enforcement officers. They're struggling with the safety, public safety within their community. In contrast that to those that everyone's working together towards that common goal, well, they're not experiencing it. The same size cities, they're just, they're just operating off a different philosophy. How do we? Yeah, you're, 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 up, you're absolutely right, uh, Pat, and I think you just touched on a very important point. I think where um, I think activists and, and some of our elected officials have made the mistake is they, they've sort of turned this into an either-or proposition. You either have, you know, policing and law enforcement or you don't. And, and I think where, the, where there's an opportunity for success, it's when, when there's collaboration, when, when people are working together. Because mm -hmm. community safety is not about, uh, it's not just about law enforcement or, um, you, you know, a law enforcement approach to every issue. It's about working together with all of the other public institutions that provide service uh, to communities and contribute to community safety and community wellness. It's about working together and coming up with solutions to some challenging issues that that have, you know, pieces of those issues are for sure require a criminal response or a law enforcement response. But there are many other pieces that require, you know, a health response, a social response. And it's about putting all those services together to get to those better outcomes. And I you know, it, it is so frustrating. And I, the other two points I, I would like to make, um, one is another frustration and, and I suppose an irony of, of this conversation that's been happening in this, 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 you know, disproportionate focus on just law enforcement is the people that pay the most, the biggest price in my view are the most vulnerable people in our communities. They're the ones that are actually you know, these activists uh, and critics of law enforcement, you know, they purport to, to be speaking on behalf of, you know, vulnerable and marginalized people in our communities. Yet many of the things they do are having the most negative impact on those very people that they're saying they're there to support. So that's frustrating as hell. The other piece, and you touched on it, is, you know, you got 800,000 law enforcement personnel in, in the United States. We've got about 80 or 90 in Canada. You know, those are people that live in communities. They're not, you know, they're 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 family people. They're brothers, they're sisters, they're they're neighbors. They live in the communities, and I know your people are just like the people that I represent. They're the people that coach. They volunteer in those in those communities. So, in addition to whatever length of shift they work as a law enforcement uh, person, they're out in the community. You know, they're volunteering at the church. They're coaching. Uh, uh, basketball or or football, they're 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 uh, they're the scout leaders. They're they're making a contribution beyond uh, what their law enforcement responsibilities are. And for for whatever reason, you know that's all been lost, and it, and it's so frustrating because our people do such fantastic work in communities right across both our countries every single day, and they make a difference. And and to use your term. They're often the glue that keeps things together, you know. They're uh, and they're they're assisting all manner of people. It's not just about arresting. Like you could talk to a cop uh, in any community, any day of the week, and they'll tell you about the people they've arrested or the cases that they worked on. But they'll also tell you about the homeless person that they bought a meal for, or gave a cigarette to, or someone else that they give a helping hand to, or the lost kid that they brought home, or. 
this is the frustrating thing about this dialogue we've been in over the last couple of years. Like our people are doing such wonderful work in communities every single day. And for whatever reason, uh, our elected officials uh, have, uh, you, know, you know, somehow lost their way and, and, and forgotten about that. And, and it's just so unfair. And it is undermining uh, policing as a profession. And, and I know you're experiencing some serious issues, and I'm sure we're going to talk about them. But, uh, you know, we're, we're both challenged in terms of recruiting and even retaining people. And then and there's the whole issue around mental health and wellness, which which has been well researched in Canada. We've done a it's a key focus for us nationally. We've done a, quite a bit of work around it, and it, you know, our, our the wellness and mental health of our people is continuously being undermined by by these kinds of conversations and the environment that's been created. Yeah, I it, I think uh, to sum it up, I, I think you're so correct. I think somewhere along the way, we allowed people to identify us as a thing. And not people uh, in law enforcement. Uh, yeah, we, we fell into the trap, in my opinion. First of all, and I don't know if you'll agree with me or not, and I, I'm not saying this to be critical. I think it's just an observation based on my experience and what I've seen is, you know, we have a we have a leadership uh, challenge in policing, in my view. Uh, the people who are involved in policing and in leadership positions, uh, I, you know, First of all, let me acknowledge uh, being in a leadership position in policing right now as a chief or a deputy chief or a commissioner or whatever. Like, I'm not going to minimize how challenging that is and 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 all the competing interests that you're trying to uh, manage. But you know, at the same time, you know that only you know carries me so far in terms of uh, cutting people some slack. I think if you say you want to be in that leadership position, then it's your responsibility to be a leader. And, and part of being a leader is taking on those tough issues and not falling into the trap of trying to appease everybody or pandering to some of this uninformed rhetoric. And quite frankly, I think we've been let down um, to some degree because those people who should have been pushing back and, and trying to better inform the conversation didn't start out doing that. And I think it's changed a little bit and we're seeing a bit more... Um, uh, of a better response in terms of trying to inform the, the conversation and make sure that uh, people are making informed decisions when it comes to things like police funding or or or, or other issues in terms of reform. Uh, but we didn't start out that way. And as you know, Pat, once, once you lose control or influence over whatever the narrative is going to be, it's really hard to get it back. It's way, way easier to be proactive and, and to step into that narrative at the start and try and influence as much as you can. And, and I'll also acknowledge what you said earlier. I'm not suggesting that policing is perfect. We, we should always be trying to learn from the mistakes that we make because we do make mistakes. And if we have people in our community that are, telling, that are telling us they want to have a different relationship with the police in their community, we ought to be listening to that too. That's, that's an important thing. And, and we should be uh, listening to what they're telling us and trying to reflect what they're telling us and how we deliver service in those communities, but it doesn't. It didn't need to turn into what it turned into, and I think, to a large uh, extent, some of that happened because people in leadership positions um, just accepted uh, some of the things that critics were saying, despite what the data and the evidence tell us. And and I think that was a mistake, and it's and and there's a cost to it, and we're we're seeing what that cost is now with with people leaving and our inability to recruit new people, uh, particularly at a time when 
there's a significant um, amount of emphasis on recruiting more diversity and making sure your police services reflect the communities that you're policing, which are all very important things. But we're going to people that have never seen policing as a first option in terms of a career. We've made the environment more difficult and negative, and then we're going to those people and say, hey, come into policing, and they're saying no, and, and you shouldn't be surprised about that because if you don't create the kind of environment that's attractive to people, they're not going to come to you and say, I want to be part of that. Years ago, probably when you and I first started in policing, you know, it was different. It was an attractive environment. It, was, it drew people uh, to the profession. And I think we're in, a, we're in a different place now where the kind of people we're trying to recruit are, they got other options. There's lots of opportunities for them. They're good people. Uh, and, and they're not going to look to come to policing where, they're, where everything's second-guessed and criticized. They're working in a fishbowl, and then they're being thrown under the bus whenever anything controversial happens because nobody wants to stand up and say, well, this, you know, let's look beyond policing and what happened. Let's look at what led to that interaction in the first place. And what can we do proactively to try and create an environment where that person never gets to having an interaction with the police that, that goes bad or, or, or turns into a negative interaction. If we, that's what we need to do is start focusing on all of the other issues that contribute to pushing people into criminal behavior, which, which then makes them more likely to have an interaction with the police that, 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 that becomes a negative interaction. Yeah, Tom, you you touched on a few things there. I'd like to answer. You know, sorry, I'm, I'm, to a I'm couple of them. Uh, all over the place here. Oh no, it's great. It's great discussion because the similarities between our two countries are, are so are, are it, you know it's striking. Um, you know, first let me let me say this that uh, that law enforcement officers are ordinary people, yeah. ordinary people who took a job, and at times they're called upon to do some extraordinary things. And and while while we have allowed many, uh, and, and the media hasn't helped, uh, kind of turn us into a thing rather than than people who are stakeholders within our communities. We we live and we work there, and, and we're just as invested in, in the success of communities, the stability of communities, uh, as anyone else. That's where our families are. So we, we're all we're all uh, stakeholders in our communities. And, and, and we need to get back to that. Uh, it, it, the powers that we have as law, as law enforcement officers is directly related to the trust we have within our communities. And, and we've lost that trust along the way, uh, in, in some ways, probably from our own, uh, doings and, 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 handling, but in a lot of ways of people who just demonized who we were, uh, for a different narrative, uh, all that aside, how we got here is really, uh, not that important right now. What's important right now is how do we how do we move forward with it? Every journey starts with a single step. Every conversation, every every uh, consensus starts with a, sim- a simple conversation. And, and when we better understand each other, we understand understand the needs of each other. Then the end result, if we're all working towards a common goal of, of stability in, in in you know strong communities, we're all we all stakeholders in that process. And to exclude anyone from that discussion. To exclude anyone in the path to 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 create a, a healthy community, well, it's a flawed process to start with. So we need to stop the rhetoric uh, immediately, and we need to start having that meaningful discussion on how do we move forward, how do we build those stronger communities, how do we make our community safer, and how do we make our jobs more safe. So I, I appreciate uh, I appreciate your insight on it because I I, I share it, and it's 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 amazing uh, the, the similarities between between our two countries. Uh, uh, that border uh, doesn't change our, our common issues. Um, but you also brought up another one, and that was I wanted to transition into to that discussion. So you set it up for us. 
Um, we have a crisis here in, in, in the United States that, uh, that has happened largely because of the rhetoric and the attacks on law enforcement in basically the last two years. And, and, it, and it's, it's two challenges. One compounds the other. One of them is, is that, again, we are ordinary people called upon to do some pretty extraordinary things. And the weight of the world will make even the strongest of knees buckle. Uh, so when you, you have law enforcement officers out there that are that are really taking in all of this 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 baggage that they're they're dealing with within the communities, well, it, it takes a toll on them as well. And then you add to that a shortage of law enforcement and the forcing officers to work more and more hours in order to be able to 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 you know effectively police communities. Well, all of that takes a toll on those that are brave enough to stay on the job every day and try and make a difference. Um, in, a, in the United States, we're seeing law enforcement officers move, leave our profession at a at a rate that we have never seen before. Retirements are are up. We have seasoned law enforcement officers that are going into other professions that are more stable. At the same time, the best and brightest, that next wave of law enforcement, that next wave that is going to mold the future of, of policing in America are just not taking this job because it has been demonized so bad by so many people who think that they're actually improving the system. And what they have done is created a crisis that will not solve itself in any short form. If you hire an officer today, you're probably looking at about five or more years before that officer becomes an effective officer to backfill all of the experience that has left the job. So we're in sort of a crisis situation here. Those that are staying on a job are taking a lot more burden. And uh, those that that are supposed to be the next wave are just not coming in any numbers to suggest that we have some relief coming. Do you see any similarities in, in Canada with that, uh, with that, um, that dynamic that exists that is, that is, you know, really created a crisis here? Yeah, no, it's, uh, we're experiencing the same thing. We're, 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 we're losing a lot of people and it's a combination of, I think the environment that we've just been discussing, but it's, we're also demographically at a place in policing in Canada where we have a bit of a bubble that's uh, that's pushing through their careers and reaching their normal retirement age. And between, you know, the environment, um, the workload issues, which which you touched on, I, which which I'm seeing as a huge crisis in Canada at the moment, where we have the people who are in policing are working way too much. They're they're way there are too many demands on their time. So they're working their regular shifts and the, the demand for overtime is, is, is seems endless. Um, so they're work, you know, instead of spending their days off, you know, recovering, engaged in other activities, making sure that they have that right work-life balance, they're just working. And, and I think that there are different times in a person's career where, where they enjoy some overtime because some additional income and, you know, helps them manage their own personal finances. But it's, it's, it's reached the point where it's too much. It's excessive and it's, it's burning our people out. So all of those things combined are, are putting people in a place where, where, where they might, might have otherwise stayed, you know, a few more years are leaving because they, they're burnt out. Uh, they've hit, you know, they have the opportunity to leave because of the way our pensions are structured and they're just going. And you're absolutely right. We're not attracting that new generation of police officer into our into our uh, profession because of the reasons we've discussed. And and most troubling for me is when I start to analyze, you know, when we start to canvas our member organizations and start to ask them about 
well, what kind of applicants are you getting? And are the, you know, where are the numbers? One of the most troubling things is we're seeing far fewer women um, look to policing as, as a career choice for a couple of reasons. One is um, we haven't done a good job of building the kind of environment that's attractive to women, particularly once they hit a stage in their lives where they, you know, they start starting to think about family and those kinds of things and juggling career and family. Um, so, so part of, I think the solution is we really need to rethink how we're recruiting uh, new people into our profession. And we need to have a real long, hard look at our culture, our systems, you know, how we deploy people, how we assign people and, 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 and look to see if there are opportunities to modernize some of our practices with respect to recruiting our organizational cultures, but also how we're training our new recruits to make sure the kind of training we're giving them and the way we're giving it to them uh, fits with their expectations, their values, uh, and, and their attitudes, uh, which are different than ours might have been when we first started in policing or when we were first recruited and trained uh, to become uh, law enforcement personnel in, 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 in our respective roles. So I, I think there are some challenges. We need to look at it as an opportunity. I'm, I'm with you. I like to look forward and I think we look to the past to, to see where the issues are, and then we look forward to how we can resolve them and, and try and turn these situations into opportunities. And I think it's also an opportunity for us to use this information, which we have been in Canada, to, to try and uh, influence the conversation that has been happening over the last two years that you alluded to, and, and to, to try and help influence some of our officials in, in, in their thinking and, 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 their, and their conversation around, um, um, you know, policing and, and to try and shift it back to uh, a situation where it is an attractive profession for younger people. And it's kind of interesting because we didn't get into it too much, but it, in Canada, from a, from a wage and benefit perspective, we do quite well. Um, and, and there's a lot of consistency across the country. So it doesn't matter whether you're working in, you know, a more rural environment. Generally speaking, you're not going to pay a huge price for that uh, in terms of wages and benefits. You're, you're typically the wages and benefits are quite competitive from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And, and, and they've improved uh, over this period of time, despite the fact that there's been lots of criticism and this push for defunding. Uh, but it's interesting because that does, you know, the wages and benefits alone aren't enough if you don't have the right environment, if it's not a positive environment, and if and if the profession is not portrayed in a positive light like it once was, like and you alluded to that earlier. So I think there's lots of challenges. It's very there's a lot of similarities. It's obviously on a bit of a smaller scale, but we're having uh, significant challenges. And of course, when we all have a recruiting. Um, um, uh, problem and it's a sector-wide problem. You've got now different agencies, you know, all competing for the same type of re recruit, along with other sectors that are offering, you know, uh, in some cases not even competitive uh, wages and, and benefits, but also in some cases lower wages and benefits. But guess what? You don't have to work shift work. You don't. You're not working in a fishbowl with every every you know even the smallest mistake being scrutinized and second-guessed by a cast of thousands. Uh, and you're not constantly being called to work um, more overtime. And one area, and I don't know what your experience has been in the U.S., but certainly in Canada, 
you know, one of the things that's that sort of made this brought this a bit more to light is just the the increased volume of protests, public protests that we're having in our country right now. And so we're having protests in local communities that are often in response to a federal policy decision. So it's affecting the local community in terms of cost and resources and, and workload. Uh, but it's a federal issue. And there, so we're having a bit of a conversation now about, you know, what are we going to do about that, um, you know, federally? And is there a way to create some kind of a framework to better manage these issues, both to make sure we have enough resources to be able to, uh, maintain safety, but also to deal with the funding and, and staffing implica implications that go along with that. So it, it is a huge challenge in Canada as well, and I, I don't think we're going to be through it for, for a while, and there has to be a bit of a shift in terms of how we're talking about policing before that'll change. And every journey starts with a single step. Uh, it's having those meaningful discussions, those uh, meaningful conversations towards a, towards a common end goal. Uh, uh, something, something we certainly share. Uh, let's let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, so you're president also of the International Council of Police Representative Organizations, uh, an association uh, that uh, has a number of uh, a number of police associations in uh, how many states now? I mean, how many countries? So we're internationally. We're in the UK. Uh, so so it's the United Kingdom, Scotland, Ireland. Uh, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, of course, Canada and the U.S. Um, so those are generally the the main countries that are involved. And then through our affiliation with the European uh, police uh, unions, uh, we we have affiliations with other uh, Scandinavian countries. Uh, you know, Denmark, Sweden. Uh, many other European countries, uh, Greece, Spain, Portugal. Uh, so depending on, you know, what's happening and, and who's participating, like, you know, uh, in any large organization, there are uh, people coming in and people going out at different times. You know, we could be collectively representing anywhere from a million and a half to about two million uh, police personnel across the world. Uh, that, you know, that is a bit of a challenge. We try and, and look at uh, including in our membership or uh, countries that are, you know, democratic countries uh, that have that respect human rights and the rule of law. Uh, so so we've been approached by many other countries uh, and have been very uh, cautious about who we uh, allow to affiliate uh, because of uh, challenges around things like that. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're not interested in, uh, uh, you know, having, uh, organizations come into our membership that are, that don't respect human rights and, and, and the rule of law and who, who themselves might be engaged in the kinds of activities that none of us would find, uh, acceptable. And, and so the International Council of Police Representative Association started in about 1996. And it really flowed from the exact kind of conversation that we're having today. There was a, a recognition among a number of the national organizations, uh, including uh, the Police Federation of Australia, uh, uh, the, the New Zealand Police Association, the Scottish Police Federation, um, recognizing that there were, you know, we're all representing the same type of person. Like you said, these are ordinary people, people that live in the community who decide to step up and get involved in, a, in, in what, what is a noble profession, 
where, where they want to make a contribution to the community and they want to help keep their community safe, they're all facing the same issues. They're all dealing with the same health and safety issues, equipment issues, training challenges, um, um, staffing challenges, resource challenges. And so there was a lot of, you know, at times there were opportunities to run into each other at different conferences or what have you. And there was, there was agreement that, you know, there was, a, there was, there was some opportunity to talk and share information and also create a bit of a network. So, you know, here we are talking about things that are happening in policing in, in both our countries and where the similarities are. Well, we now have this network where, you know, if if I hear about something that's happening in the United States, I can reach out to Patrick Yos and ask him about it and find out firsthand. So when I'm meeting with my, uh, you know, public safety minister federally here in Canada, and we're talking about a policing issue, and he starts to say, well, this is what's going on in the U.S., and we want to replicate it in Canada, I can actually talk to somebody and find out what really is happening in the U.S. and what are the implications for our members, and is it a positive or a negative thing? Uh, so I'm better informed, and that's really the impetus for creating this international association, and that's our main goals are to share information and, and maintain this network so that we can communicate with each other around common issues, common challenges, and get a really good understanding of what's happening in each other each other's countries, because all of our uh, respective um, elected officials who are responsible for policing in each of our countries, you know, they're they're meeting with each other. You know, for example, through the Five Eyes, uh, we've got members in all of our countries mm -hmm. that are involved in international uh, missions uh, where there are um, um, you know common issues that that. That, that we should be aware of and trying to address where our members are deploying in the same, you know, jurisdictions, um, um, you know, trying to assist other countries in establishing effective policing um, in their countries. Um, and, and so that's the impetus behind it. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it can be challenging because, you know, as you know, just trying to organize a conference call, you're dealing with different time zones and uh, lots of distance, but, uh, but we we've managed to keep it together, and we try and get together, you know, once once a year or once uh, once every two years at a at a bigger conference where we can get to know each other a little bit and 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 engage and and exchange information and and I think overall it's been it's certainly been beneficial to me in my role in Canada. Uh, I know for a number of years we had a lot of pressure in Canada to adopt many of the police practices that exist in the UK, and I was able to capitalize on the relationships that I developed uh, through ICPRA uh, to get some really good information that was very helpful in terms of influencing that discussion here in this country. Uh, and hopefully we'll continue to keep going. Yeah. It's, I, and I, I, I find it refreshing uh, when we do have our teleconferences, of course, uh, COVID, uh, COVID kind of kept our distance, uh, but uh, you know, we, we talk about boundaries, we talk about borders and oceans and in a world away, but uh, the issues in, in a free society and policing in a free society are so similar. And there's so much uh, just uh, really enjoy listening to the insight of, uh, of our other partners uh, that are and how they're dealing with them and, and, and that application on how it can help us uh, here, here in the United States. So really much, uh, very much appreciate uh, our participation in the association. Uh, if you could uh, wrap this up, uh, if somebody wants to know more about the, uh, uh, the Canadian Police Association, uh, how would they go about uh, 
about finding more about uh, about your organization? Yeah, you can uh, go to our website. would would be the easiest www.cpa-acp.ca, and on that website, you'll see me on Twitter. I'm fairly active here in Canada, commenting mostly on policing issues. So don't expect me to be posting about you know what I had for lunch and where I'm going on my days off. I, I really focus on 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 policing issues. Uh, we also uh, have a pretty large uh, Facebook presence, which we're trying to use to push out our message, positive messages. We're also trying to use that platform to um, to get involved in some of the local issues and try and influence the narrative that's happening. And our, while I'm not sure, you know, how big these platforms are in in, in the U.S., but certainly in Canada, you know, we've managed to put together a, a fairly substantial following. We have about just over 430,000 people following us, uh, which is a bigger following than some of our national um, news outlets, uh, National Post, for example. So so we're doing fairly well there with that platform. And in terms of our international uh, organization, the International Council of Representative Associations, uh, we have a, a website where we try and house uh, information. We put together a newsletter every two or three months uh, where um, each of the member organizations can contribute and provide a bit of an update around what's happening locally. And that website is at www.icpra.org. Uh, and, and so your members can pop on there and, and get some information. And of course, uh, once you're on there, if anyone has any questions or want to know more about what we're doing in Canada or even internationally, happy to, to try and respond. Our, our general secretary internationally is a fellow by the name of Callum Steele, and he actually uh, uh, manages the ICPRA Twitter handle, uh, so you get some information that way as well. But uh, one of us will get back to you uh, with some info if somebody's interested in, in some follow-up. And, and uh, you know, listen, the more we uh, collaborate and, and talk about these issues, I think the stronger uh, we are in terms of uh, responding to some of these challenges. And, and the more unity there is in the policing community, uh, I think, uh, you know, that's how we're going to overcome what we've been talking about over this last 45 minutes or so or hour uh, and this this demonization of policing and, and making this, you know, turning policing into something it's never been in any of our countries and it never will be. Uh, like I said before, the contributions that our people make on a day-to-day -day basis in every community they police, I don't care what community it is, and I don't care how co controversial policing has been in any community. If you look at it from an objective lens, police officers will be making more of a contribution in a community than many other agencies, including those that purport to be there just to deal with vulnerable and marginalized uh, people. I've seen that throughout my career. And quite frankly, if, if, I, if I thought differently, I wouldn't be doing the work that I'm doing. I, I, I believe in the people that do our work and they're good people uh, that, you know, and sometimes we, you know, good people can make mistakes. And occasionally, like any other sector, we have the odd person that gets involved police, in policing that shouldn't be. And quite frankly, we, we respond to those uh, situations uh, pretty quickly and pretty effectively. I don't care what country you're in.
Well, Tom, thank you for, for look, uh, it, it's, it's a challenging time to be in, in our profession right now. It's a challenging time to be a leader of a union in, in our profession right now. Uh, but those challenges also give us many opportunities to improve uh, our criminal justice systems in our respective countries. And, and I appreciate all that you do, not only in, in Canada, but also on an international stage as well. Uh, so thank you for, for joining us today. And, and for our listeners, thank you for tuning in to The Blue View, where we talk about those issues that are so vitally important to the men and women who suit up and show up in communities across America every single day, making a difference in the lives of those that they sworn to protect and serve. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else to get your podcasts. To get the latest from the National FOP, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at GLFOP and on Instagram at FOP National. Thanks again. See you next time.